There we go. Good morning. <laughs> welcome to Resurrection City. My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, just want to give you a special welcome, all of you who are, uh, as Joel called us last week, the leftovers who do not have cabins to go to on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us. Um, and if you're watching online up north of the cabin or listening to us later, uh, we're just glad that you're worshiping with us. Uh, so if you're just joining us, we just last week started a new series on 1 Corinthians that we're calling Becoming Who We Are. So I'm going to, uh, to get us started, read the full passage and pray for us, and then we will jump right in. So this is 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 31. For Christ did not send me, this is Paul talking, this is a letter to the Corinthians, to baptize, but to preach the good news and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who think they are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring no to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom him itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. All right, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this morning and for this chance to study your word. We thank you that in your wisdom, you gave us this book, uh, your scriptures, that we can study still and learn more about who you are and who you have created us to be. So Lord, will you help us this morning Help us to uh, hear from you, but not only to hear and learn, but to actually grow and change and become more like you and how we live our everyday lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so how many of you follow some kind of influencer? Raise your hand. Okay, all of you who are not raising your hands, I don't believe you. Uh, because I think you can argue that pretty much everyone in media these days is an influencer. They might not be trying to influence you to buy something in the way that maybe that's typically how we think of an influencer, but knowingly or unknowingly, they are trying to influence you toward a worldview or a specific way of life. 
So for example, I like to cook and I have a lot of dietary restrictions. So I follow a lot of like food blogs. And you might think the only thing they're trying to influence you to is to make their recipes. But I found that that's not actually true. They're, again, consciously or unconsciously, trying to sell a way of life, uh, a worldview, whether that's you know, following the supernatural, like, holistic way of living and making food and all of that, or something else. Whatever it is, they are influencing. And in the same way, I would argue all podcasters are influencers. Right? They're trying to get you to see the world a certain way through the way they communicate, the stories they tell, the interviewing that they do. I think you could even argue that sports pundits are influencers. No, news reporters are influencers. There's a ton of Christian influencers. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it's something in our life that we experience. Everyone has something to say, and we have a lot of ways to listen. And I really don't think this is new. I actually think this is exactly the, one of the issues that the Corinthians are dealing with in uh, this context of this letter. Because the Corinthians, they, there were all these people, they were more like debaters or people who would stand around in the town square and give like, inspiring speeches about things. Uh, but they were trying to influence people as well. They may have been doing it in a different way or using a different medium than we're used to. But they still had something to say, and there were still people who were there to listen. And we need to understand this because, again, 1 Corinthians is a letter. And so we're just getting Paul's response here in the, in the book, but we need to know what's going on with the 1 Corinthians, or with the Corinthians, not first, uh, that Paul was responding to. Uh, and scholar Gordon Fee, he talks about Corinth, and he says that what, it was at once the New York... Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. So these are like the culture-setting cities, right? New York and Los Angeles, at least. I think Las Vegas was just thrown in there because Corinth was also known as like a party city. <laughs> I don't usually think of Las Vegas as being like culture-setting in the way I think of New York and Los Angeles. Uh, but you have to remember that this is the place where like trends were set. Culture was being made uh, and decided in, these, in the city of Corinth. And as Joel talked about last week, kind of the underlying problem with the Corinthian church is that they are forgetting that they are holy people, meaning that they are set apart by God. They aren't meant to be just like everyone else in the city around them. But what we see in this passage in particular is that the Corinthians don't want to be set apart. They want to fit in. And isn't that still relatable today? And they are listening to all these other influencers, and what they want is to fit in with what everyone in culture is saying and telling them to do, rather than to be set apart by God. And as a result, there are two things that, as they're talking to Paul in this part of the letter, that they seem to want changed, right? One of them is Paul himself, and the other is the message that he has uh, been preaching. So one of the things they want changed is Paul himself, these other teachers and influencers, um, they would have probably used the word like orators, uh, that they are seeing and listening to, these people seem like they have arrived, right? They are cool. They are successful. They're amazing public speakers. Everyone is flocking to them to hear what they have to say. They're very successful by the world's standards. 
Paul, on the other hand, is not experiencing a lot of success as the Corinthians would have, would have seen it. Right? The culture that the Corinthians are living in um, is something that we call a shame and honor type of society. So basically, if you do something that's worthy of honor, it brings honor to everyone that you are connected to. And if you do something that's considered shameful, same thing. That shame spreads to anyone that you might be connected with. It's honestly kind of a lot like cancel culture, right? If someone does something that the society deems is not good, then they and everyone connected to them are sort of shamed. And so it's really, again, similar to kind of some of the things we experience now. And Paul is not doing anything that's really considered honor-worthy in his culture, or in ours today, really. He's not a great public speaker, like all of these other people. We, say, you know, we can see in his letters, he's actually a very talented writer, but I guess public speaking was not his thing. So he's not bringing them any honor in that way. And then on top of all of that, it seems like everywhere he goes, he's getting beat up and thrown in prison, right? Not things that typically bring honor. And so in the letter, you can kind of feel the Corinthians seem conflicted, right? They want to fit in, but they also want to follow Paul and his message. So what do they kind of do with this tension they're feeling? I think that their response was basically like, okay, we want Paul to change. We want Paul to be cooler. It honestly sort of feels a little bit like uh, when kids are embarrassed of their parents and they're like, oh my gosh, dad, can you just be cool? Like, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. Uh, and so it feels a little bit like that in how they're talking. And then in Paul's, the other thing they want changed is Paul's message. So they want his message to come with more power and wisdom. But the type of wisdom and power that they wanted is not what maybe is coming to our minds when we think about wisdom. Because typically we think of wisdom uh, in the church as something that is like a part of God's character, right? It's something that comes from God and comes from scripture. But that's not really the type of wisdom that they are talking about in Corinth. The type of wisdom that they wanted is more like, um, like the wisdom of the day, right? Like what does culture say is wise? And scholars talk about how the word wisdom that they're using here, it's actually sort of like this buzzword in Corinth at the time. And it was a totally different meaning than what we might think of. It's more about like a philosophy of like, what is the good life? Or um, like, what's the best way to live? How are these things that are going to like bring you success? What's wise in that way? So when he's talking about wisdom here, he's not talking about you know, like the wisdom of the Proverbs or wisdom that you might find in Scripture, he's talking about it more in the way that society would have considered wisdom. And their problem is that Paul isn't really fitting into that worldview of wisdom. This wisdom uh, was likely a worldview that valued success and being well thought of by others, having a big following, and much of what we think, it's honestly, it's very similar to what a lot of people think of success as today. And as I said, Paul and his message do not really fit this, right? Paul is trying to live out a message about a Messiah who allowed himself to be crucified and gave up all of his worldly power, basically the opposite of what the Corinthians want. And this is a big problem for Paul, not because he's worried that he's going to lose followers. I'm sure he's probably annoyed that they are comparing him to others and acting like he's not good enough, right? He's human. Um, and it would be annoying for a leader who has given his all to these people to then have them turn around and be like, we need more. You need to be better. 
But that's not his primary concern. His primary concern is that they are rejecting his message, which isn't actually his. It's the gospel of Jesus. So at the end of the day, Paul's bigger concern is that if the Corinthians keep moving towards this quote-unquote wisdom of the day, that they are going to be rejecting the message of Jesus. Because it's not just that the Corinthians want a leader who's cool and looks acceptable to the rest of the world. They want a message that fits in with the rest of the world. And that is fundamentally not the message of Christ. Essentially, the Corinthians want a God that's made in their own image and not trying to image the God who made them. And so this is Paul's response. He replies and tells them, the gospel of Jesus does have wisdom and power, but it's not the type of wisdom and power that you're thinking of. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom, again, you're seeing that word now pop up everywhere, uh, of this world look foolish. Since God, in his wisdom, saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the, Greeks, or the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So Paul doesn't give the politician answer where he sort of pivots and tries to talk about something else. He goes straight to it. He says, I know, the message of Jesus, it seems foolish. And this might sound strange to us, uh, because if you've um, been a Christian for a while, or if you've been in churches, uh, the cross doesn't automatically seem like a symbol of foolishness to us, right? It's something that sort of seems like power, and um, it's the message of the gospel. But this was not the world that the Corinthians were living in. Uh, scholar Gordon Fee, he says it in his commentary this way. He says, for the, for the Corinthians, Christ crucified is a contradiction in terms of the same category as fried ice. Not fried rice, which is not a contradiction, but a lovely combination. Fried ice, something that does not, you cannot have. He says, one may have a Messiah or one may have a crucifixion but one may not have both, at least not from the perspective of merely human understanding. Because for them, Messiah meant power, splendor, triumph, and crucifixion meant weakness, humiliation, and defeat. So as a Messiah, if, if you were going to call Jesus a Messiah, people expected Jesus to have this great show of power in overthrowing the government and starting a revolution. And instead... He allowed himself to get arrested, to be tried as a criminal, and to be executed in the most shameful way that one could die, to, be, to die on a cross. So it was actually an embarrassment to, to have a Messiah, a leader, who in the eyes of society had failed so spectacularly. But, Paul says, actually Christ is the true embodiment of power and wisdom, even though you're saying it seems weak and foolish. It says, while the cross seemed like a failure to the world, it actually was a great show of power, and it did start a revolution, just 
not the way people expected it to. And this is exactly how the God of the universe decides to do things. And on the surface, it might not seem wise and powerful, but that's where the real wisdom and power comes from. God subverts every idea that humans had about what it looks like to be successful. He doesn't overcome and overthrow the government. He dies for them and for us. He knows that the only way uh, that he can make things right is through his own death, a true show of power and wisdom. Only through sacrificial love and forgiveness and grace can he bring about new life to anyone who wants to follow him. Only through the cross can he take on the consequences of sin and wipe them out entirely. It sounds crazy because it is. And you know that it's from God because none of us would have ever come up with a plan like that. If I said to all of you right now, you need to come up with a plan to save the world, save the entire thing, how are you going to do it? None of us are going to choose what God did, right? We come up with things like superheroes and politicians and big successful social movements. But God chooses the thing that seems weak and foolish to bring about the healing that the world needed, to show that even his foolishness is wiser than anything we could come up with, and even his weakness is stronger than our best attempts to make things right. And another part about this is that it keeps the focus on Jesus and nothing else. It makes it so that his message can transcend time and culture and good leaders and bad leaders because ultimately it's not about how the message is presented, it's the message itself. It's not about us and our power and our wisdom, it's about God and his glory. In his book, Word-Centered Church, Jonathan Lehman, he recounts this story uh, from a a long time ago. He says, a group of American Christians in the 19th century planned to visit London for a week. Their friends, excited for the opportunity, encouraged them to go hear two of London's most famous preachers and report back. So on Sunday morning after their arrival, the Americans attended Joseph Parker's church. They discovered that his reputation for eloquent oratory was well-deserved. One exclaimed after the service, I do declare, which can we bring that back as like a thing? I do declare, uh, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher there ever was. The group wanted to return in the evening to hear him again, but they remembered that their friends would ask them about another preacher named Charles Spurgeon. So on Sunday evening, they attended uh, Spurgeon's church where he was preaching, and the group was not prepared for what they heard. And as they departed, one of them spoke up and said, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that there ever was. And that's how God wants it. He doesn't want us to focus on the flashy, the talented, the successful. He wants us to focus on the message of Jesus, a message that subverts every idea of success that the world has and in return offers something so much better, grace, love, forgiveness, and new life. But the Corinthians have lost sight of this. They've gotten swept up in the hype of all of these influencers, and Paul, he wants to get their attention back, so he kind of appeals to their own experience, And he says in verse 26, he says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes 
or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those that are powerful. So Paul says, you should instinctively know this because it was your experience with God. Right? Not, not many of you, there were a few people in the, in the church of Corinth that were wealthy, apparently. So he says, not many of you were successful in the world's eyes when you came to know Jesus. And the Corinthian church is mostly thought of to be made up of like lower to middle class people. And so he's saying, you didn't have much to offer when you came to know him. And God still chose you. And in some way, he's calling the Corinthians out a little bit. He's saying, okay, well, you liked the idea that God subverts this idea of success when he called you to follow him, but now you want to turn your back and go somewhere else and hear a different message? And this is true for us, too. Right? Take a minute and think about who you were before you started following Jesus. I was a college student. And I was dealing with a lot of past trauma and trying to find my significance in relationships and school and pretty much anything else I could try to find it in. Uh, and maybe you had a similar experience, or maybe you started following Jesus at a young age. Maybe you were a child, right? You definitely weren't successful in the world's eyes if you were five. Whatever your experience was, God uses our weaknesses to show us how powerful he truly is and can be in our lives. And if you're not currently a follower of Jesus, and all this talk about weakness doesn't sound appealing to you, here's the freeing part about God working this way. These other influencers, these other worldviews, they require a lot of effort. You have to keep up appearances. You have to buy the right things. You have to have money to buy the right things. You have to do all of the things that are considered living the good life. Success and power and hustle are prerequisites to even being a part of this worldview. I actually asked a few people at Red City what they thought like, the wisdom of our day is. Like, what, what are some of the things that people would say, like, this is wisdom about how to live a good life? And here were some of the answers. Someone said, being uh, educated on every issue, <laughs> having the correct stance on everything, the socially acceptable stance on every issue, never saying or believing anything that could potentially get you canceled. Uh, someone else said, being true to yourself is what they often hear as the wisdom of the day. And being true to yourself actually <laughs> sounds easy on the surface, but really if you try to do it, it requires always knowing what you want. Do you always know what you want? I can barely decide some days, like, what do I want to eat for breakfast today? You have to always know what's best and always make the right choices. I recently heard someone talk about uh, the Sunday scaries, which I know don't really apply this weekend since most people have tomorrow off. But this experience where as the weekend comes to a close, they were talking about how they get all of this anxiety because they were thinking, did I maximize every moment of my weekend? Right? Did I do everything right? That's, they were basically paralyzed by this question to the point where they were like sick to their stomach as they thought about the weekend coming to an end. This stuff is exhausting. Trying to live this way, trying to follow this worldview, you can chase it until you burn out. And it's not gracious if you make a mistake. So it's honestly a chase that mostly leads to shame and anxiety. Or you can accept that while you were chasing the various wisdoms of the day, 
Jesus already died and rose again to offer you true wisdom. Jesus says, follow me because my way is easy and my burden is light. His wisdom is a wisdom that does not require any effort on your part. You can't earn it. You just have to accept it. And the hard part about accepting this deal is that you have to make the radical leap to believe something that seems foolish and weak to everyone else around you. You know, I often hear people say things like, oh yeah, I like Christianity and its teachings. I just don't really like Christians. But when they say that, they're usually talking about the things like, oh yeah, I like that Jesus says love your neighbor and you know, I, he seems like a good person. I don't often hear people say, you know, I love the cross and I 100% believe in a miraculous resurrection, but you know, I just don't really like Christians, so I can't, I can't follow Jesus. The message of the gospel is strange. It's countercultural, and it's going to seem foolish to people around us. This passage uh, that we're looking at today ends with Paul writing, uh, God chooses things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and uses them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom himself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. So we have to make this leap of faith to believe that even if the gospel of Jesus seems foolish to the world now, it's ultimately going to be the thing that God uses to make the world look foolish. We have to have hope in a future that when Jesus returns, he will be king over all the world and everyone will see his power. And we have to be willing to live as people who are different until then. So last week, Joel talked about this idea of holiness and what it means to be set apart. Things that are, are set apart are, by kind of nature, different. Uh, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how something that we don't really buy anymore uh, is what my parents and my grandparents would call wedding china. So for my parents and my grandma, my grandma actually had a set that looked very similar to this. Uh, it was something that everyone registered for, and it was this like special, uh, special set of dishes that you only used on holidays or when a special guest came over. It's set apart. And it looks different from the everyday plates and bowls and glasses that you would use. You have to remember that if something's going to be set apart, it's going to look different. And if we're going to be set apart, we have to be okay with being different. We have to trust that based on our personal experience and the way that God called us, even when we were not special, that we can trust that God is doing something and he is in setting us apart. And as Paul says, if you want to boast, boast only in the Lord. And this word boast, it can mean both boasting like in the sense of bragging um, or kind of like, you know, being like, hey, look at me. I am, you know, this is what I have. But it also means, it can also mean trust or to put one's full confidence in. So you could also read this verse as, if you want to trust in something, trust only in the Lord. And for us to truly trust only in the Lord, we have to release control. We have to release the desire to control what other people think of us 
We have to release the idea that we know what's best for us and for our own lives. We have to stop seeking a God that we make in our own image and start seeking to live out the image that God has made us in. I love how scholar N.T. Wright says it. He says, being made in God's image, being in Christ, is the Christian's basic strength and delight. And if that doesn't make you somebody, if that doesn't make you cool enough, if that doesn't make you uh, comfortable in your own self, nothing ever will. And so we're going to head into a time of communion and worship through song now. And we do communion every week, not because it's trendy, but because it reminds us all of the reason that we're here. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And as we take communion today, I want to invite you to release any of the things that you might wish were cooler about Jesus' message or about the church. Anything where you feel like, I want to fit in more than I want to be set apart. And as you come up to take communion, I invite you to be reminded of the true wisdom and the true power that God brought into the world through Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we get to experience your true power and your true wisdom. We know that uh, it can be easy to be swept up into the wisdom of the day, and it can be easy to want to fit in. But Lord, will you help us to see the true power and true wisdom in what you've done in your son Jesus? Will you remind us of the ways that you called us even while we were not special, while we were not powerful, while we were not wealthy, that you called us regardless? Would you help us to have that message sink so deeply into our hearts that we are comfortable being set apart, that we are comfortable following you even when it may appear weak and foolish to the rest of the world? In your name we pray. Amen.